So part of the Reformation involves a particularly um, gruesome time where there were uh, martyrs under the reign of the English Queen Mary. We refer to her as Bloody Mary. I'm sure you've heard of her. And under her reign, 200 in the last four years of her reign, there were 288 Protestants that were killed, that were martyred for their Protestant faith. I I only want to, I only have time to talk about one of them this morning, so I thought I'm going to talk to you about the first one, John Rogers. If we can get his picture up, John Rogers was a pastor in London, and on Monday, February 4th, he was burned at Smithsfield. He was a man who uh, helped translate what is now commonly referred to as the Matthews Bible. He assisted Tyndale and Coverdale. In fact, as when he was going to be condemned, he was condemned as Rogers alias Matthews, which probably had something to do with the fact that he was the first guy the first person to get, uh, the first reformer to get burned under uh, Bloody Mary. On the morning he was going to be martyred, he was woken up early at his cell in Newgate, barely given time to dress himself. He was then led on foot to Smithfield, and he was within sight of the Church of the Sepulchre where he had preached. That's, so he's, he's led by the very place where he has done his work as a pastor on the way by he sees his wife and his ten children. He is not allowed to, to really spend hardly any time. They, you know, he's walking by them. He sees them. One of them is an infant. One of them is a baby. They were not allowed to visit him while he was in prison. But they see him marching to his execution. As he goes, it is said he's quoting Psalm 51. You know that one, right? That's the one that David does after he commits adultery. And you think, this guy is walking to his death and he's thinking about how God has cleansed him of his sin. That's the psalm he's reciting. And as he gets there and they lay the wood out and they light it, there's thunderous applause by the crowd that came to observe it. The French ambassador was there. And he was shocked because there was a little bit of, like, nobody really knew at the very beginning of this whole, you know, 288 that were killed. Um, nobody really knew how were people going to go to their death? How was it going to be? And the French ambassador that was there wrote and said, it looked as if he was walking forward on his wedding day. That's the way he approached the state. And so the first martyr gave his life, the first of many more. <clears throat> One of the interesting things that comes out of these stories of the martyrs under the reign of Mary is they were often given a chance to recant, to take back their beliefs. And one of the primary things that they believed that caused their condemnation, if they would just take this back, and they would not, what was it? It was the Eucharist. It was the Lord's Supper. If they would just agree 
with official Catholic teaching that the elements of communion would actually literally become Jesus' body and blood. They could have spared their life. But they would not. They would rather be burned. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's a little shocking. It's a little shocking. But it's altogether true. What I would like to do this morning is talk about what the Lord's Supper is. I'm probably going to spend a little less time talking about the controversies of it. I will touch on it because there are different views of what this table represents. So I'm going to touch on it. But I'm not going to like, I'm not going to dwell there. I think I'd rather dwell on what meaning does it have for us? What does the Bible tell us? How should we view the table? Okay, so I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in verse 23. If you, don't have, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's just fine. There should be a blue one in front of you. 1 Corinthians 11. And the whole reason the Apostle Paul writes this particular section of 1 Corinthians is because the Corinthians have a rather unique way of taking communion. They fight over it. And if you're rich, it's like a feast. So you're eating all the bread and you're getting drunk on the wine. It's a party. Hey guys, I was at the Lord's Supper last night. It was great. It's great. But but the more troubling thing is that what you see happening is that there that the, the, the social distinctions in the church are being played out at the Lord's Supper table. So if you were poor, you might not get anything. No Lord's Supper. No bread, no wine. If you were rich, you 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 were like feasting on it and getting drunk on it. As if we don't all come to the table the same way, regardless of your income level, regardless of your, your class and society, regardless of your background, that we all come the same way to Christ. We all come in desperate need to be forgiven of our sins. And here they are saying, no, you don't have as much as we have. You're not in this. And Paul actually says at one point, that's not the Lord's Supper you're taking. That's something else that you're doing when you guys get together. Here's the teaching uh, on what the Lord's Supper is. If you look at verse 23, uh, let's do 17. we have time for this, I think. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you uh, to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Which would mean died. The sermon didn't put them to sleep. Um, okay, just to be clear. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Okay. So, um, here's how I want to talk about communion today. I would like to highlight three different ways we ought to look at the Lord's Supper. Um, the Lord's Supper is bigger than what I'm going to say today. I mean, there's more, there's more to it than what I'm going to say today. But I just want to, I want to point out three areas in the text we can kind of focus in on this morning and maybe uh, gain some deeper meaning into what's going on when we take the bread and the juice. Remember Christ. Number one, to understand the Lord's Supper, you have to look at the past. You have to look at the past. We remember the death of Christ. Two times in the verses I just read, it, Jesus, it, Paul records Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. You're like, here's the bread. Remember me. Here's the cup. Remember me. Two times. So clearly, the idea of remembering is important. The word for remember in Greek is anamnesis. Uh, we remember, kind of looks like the word amnesia, right? You know, uh, we remember the death of Christ. We take a backwards look to see what he did on the cross. Now, that word anamnesis is only used two other times in the Bible. As you might imagine, one of the times that word is used is in Luke 22:19, when Jesus actually says, do this in remembrance of me. You know, like that's pretty obvious. The other one, the other time anamnesis is used in the Bible is very interesting. And, and I think it really connects with what we're talking about with remembering the past, remembering the cross. It's in Hebrews. Check this one out. So again, I'm saying there's four times remembrance is used. Once is Luke, once is Hebrews, and twice is the passage we just read. Do it in remembrance of me. But look at this one. But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sin every year. Now, what does that mean? If you read all of Hebrews 10, which you should, um, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, um, summarize it for you. Hebrews 10 is about, uh, he's talking about Old Testament sacrifices. You know, bring the bull, bring the goat. And in the Old Testament, you would, you would put your hands on the bull, hands on the goat, you confess the sins, and then you'd kill it. And that animal would cover your sins. The priests did this day after day after day. It was loud. It was smelly. It was bloody. Day after day after day. That was their job. And it never ended. The, the, the killing of animals for sin was something you kind of had to keep up with. Like, like, you can never say, like, I'm done. 
I'm done. I killed my last goat. Thank goodness. It's done. It's done. It's kind of like, and sorry for the crude analogy, but I'm trying to get my point across. Uh, and, and kids, you, you, you can understand this too. It's kind of like brushing your teeth. There's never a day you wake up and brush your teeth and say, ah, finally the last time. Unless you take all your teeth out maybe, then you're really done, right? That, but that's different. That is a different thing. But if you've got teeth in your mouth, you know, if you don't brush them, like, like i got to tell you, we moved this weekend. We moved to a new house in Three Lakes. And the morning that we moved, I had everything packed up. I did not brush my teeth. I'm just putting it out there. Sorry, people. I'm sorry. I tried to stay away from you. But but not brushing my teeth that morning, you know how I thought, all day I thought about it. You know, I'm like, it's it's the plaque. It's the it's the bacteria. It's it's gross. And if you do that day after day after day, it's cavities. And it's a buildup of all stuff. Stuff's living in your mouth, you know, and you're not killing it because you're not taking care of it. Teeth is something you have to keep up with. You gotta go to your dentist and you gotta take care of that stuff. Otherwise stuff happens in there that's not good. It's sinful, you know. Um, now all I'm saying is this. Sacrifices is something you gotta keep up with. Cause you're gonna sin tomorrow, you're gonna sin the next day, you're gonna sin the day after that. Priest, you're always gonna have a job because you're always gonna need somebody to offer the sacrifice. Just like we'll always need people to be in the funeral home business. We're always going to need a priest until, until Christ. Last one. That's Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 is all like, it's done. No more. The last one happened. And the last one happened at Calvary when Christ gave His life. So I never have to, in some sense, I keep up with my sin when I confess, when I repent, and we'll talk about repentance in a minute, but, but, but there's no keeping up with forgiving it because it's been dealt with. I think it's so interesting. Um, you know, if, if you're watching the news at all these days, all of the people, all of these famous celebrities coming out and, and there's accusations of misconduct. And what surprises me, it's not surprising to me that there's this misconduct. It's not surprising that people are behaving inappropriately. You know, I'm not surprised by that. But I'm always surprised that a lot of these people that are accused say like, yeah, I did it. Like, is that surprised you too? Like, yeah, that was me. I, I did that. I'm sorry. And, and, and for many of them, it's like, your career probably is over now. That this is known. You're not going to get hired. You're not going to star in the major motion picture. It's done for some of them. Maybe some will recover. I don't know. And it was a reminder to me, like, I'm not saying that they should be in movies. I'm saying sin has consequences. And I, I recognize that. And I know that's good for our society when we see that sin has consequences. You know, that, that's, a, that's a good thing. But, but it also reminds me, like, how do, how do we deal with the guilt of all that? How does the world deal with the guilt of that? Other than to say... I'm not talking anymore, you're out, we're not hiring you anymore, your life is over, your career's done, you know. But we, we can say those things, but how do you actually deal with the guilt of it? How do you live with yourself? You check yourself into rehab, maybe you need to, but how do you deal with yourself? And it reminds me that only Christians have that. We look back and say it was dealt with 2,000 years ago. It was dealt with. Doesn't mean I don't need to repent, doesn't mean I don't need to make reparations if I've hurt somebody, you know. That's still true. Zacchaeus paid people back, right? But the guilt of it, the cleansing of it, the cleansing of my conscience happened then, 
freeing me from sin. I'm not a slave to it anymore. It, it's past. It's a past. And it's incredible. Some of you need to remember the cross because your past, you keep getting reminded of your past, right? Some of you live with the consequences of your sin. I'm not saying that's wrong. There are earthly consequences to sin. That's clear. Paul says some of you have fallen asleep. Uh, some of you are sick. There, there are earthly consequences to sin. How do you face yourself in the morning if you can't look back at the cross? You need to remember. Communion's good for you to remember. Some of you maybe don't have that guilty, guilty conscience, but you need to remember just to celebrate what God has saved you from. What he saved you for. That, 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 that sin's not holding you back anymore and he's freed you to live a new life. What is your reason to remember? That's my question. Why do you need to remember the cross today? Because we all do. We all do. Do this in remembrance of me. Why do you need to remember? Number two. We're looking at the past, but we also get to look at the present. We discern the body of Christ. Now this is interesting. And this is a little complicated. So so uh, uh, follow this a little bit. Verse 27. In light of all the fighting and drunkenness and social distinctions and all that garbage that church is doing, therefore, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sitting against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing, there's our word, discerning, diacrino, okay? Without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks, judgment on himself. So, diacrino is the word discern or recognize. It's also the word for judge. So there's kind of a play on words here, okay? It's kind of like this. Either you judge yourself or God will judge you. You know what I mean? And by judging, I don't mean sending to hell, because we've been saved from hell. But, but the way Paul is talking here is either you judge yourself by looking at yourself or God's going to judge you and he's going to discipline you and it won't be pleasant. Wouldn't it be better when you, before you come to communion, to the Lord's Supper, to judge yourself? To discern something. To say, what's going on in my life? Am I following Christ? Am I not? What's going on here? Now, this is, this is, um, we discern the body of Christ. That's the way Paul says it. What does it mean to discern the body? Now, I understand Paul says examine yourself. What's that have to do with discerning the body? How do those two things relate is what I want to know. I'm judging the body of Christ. What does that mean? I'm discerning it. Well, I think in this context it can mean one or, one or two things, probably both. I think both. But I'll give you the two. Discerning the body could refer to, I mean, they were getting drunk on wine. They're getting drunk on what represents the blood of Christ. Think about that. You're getting drunk on the blood of Christ? So discerning the body means recognizing this is a picture of Jesus' body. This isn't like a snack. This represents something that is holy and pure and gave His life for you. It's not a snack. So, so discerning the body would mean recognizing what this means. But the second thing discerning the body could mean, if you're taking notes here, that the second thing it could mean is I'm recognizing that I'm the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. 
And if I treat people like garbage in the body of Christ, that is so wrong. That is so wrong. We are the body of Christ. I need to recognize that. Now, having said that, I'd say when it comes to examining yourself, Paul says examine yourself and discern the body, judge yourself. I think you can do that in two ways. Again, if you're taking notes, I'm saying I think there's two ways you can do that. You can do that on the big church scale, like all of us. How are we doing as a church? Am I loving people in this church the way I should? Do I have a problem with somebody in this church? Do I need to work something out? Discern the body. We're the body. Am I treating people like the body or am I playing favorites? Am I treating some people poorly because they don't have as much as me? Am I treating some people better because they have more than me and I want to get in with their good graces, you know, I want to be with them, you know? Am I, am, am I wronging the body? Or it could also mean an individual thing like me and God. How's your walk with Christ? Examine yourself. By the way, when Paul says you ought to examine yourself, it's singular. It's you, singular, me. I'm examining me. So I'm saying before you take communion, are there sins that you haven't repented of? Now, if some people have done this, and I've heard about people that have said this, you know, if I struggle with sin this week, I can't take communion. Well, all of you have sinned this week. So none of you are getting communion today. You know, it's like, no, I'm shutting it down. If that's the way it is, none of you are getting communion. It's done. But I think the better idea here is to believe in Christ is to live a life of repentance, right? To turn from sin. I'm going to sin. Do I have a repentant attitude? So if you want to know what I think the key is to examining yourself, and Paul says examine yourself, the key is, do I have a repentant attitude of turning from sin? If you don't, don't take this. Don't take this. If you're not humble and repentant and you know your need for grace and you want to turn from your sin, don't do it if you're, if you're going to be like that. I'm thinking about this too. When is the right time to examine your heart before you take communion? I mean, usually I do it. You know, Paul says examine yourself. That means I usually do it five minutes before I take it, you know. Like normally when the music's playing and I've got it in my hand, I'm, I'm thinking about myself. I don't got a lot of time to think during that time. I don't know about you. I mean, it's enough, right? It, it is what it is. What if you started examining yourself when you first walked in the doors of the church? You know what I mean? Like, I see the tables prepared. The table's set up really nice. Start looking at your heart you'd have more time. What if you started examining your heart during the week? Every second Sunday, we take communion. The second Sunday is when we do it. Second Sunday of the month. If you know it's coming up, what if you started looking at your life during the week? I don't know if five minutes is enough. I mean, we do it because we need to do it, I believe. Give people a chance. But what if we what if we're more thoughtful on how that worked out? Because apparently when you're not thoughtful, there's sickness and death that could happen to you. Sickness and death for not discerning, diacrino, the body of Christ. Either we judge ourselves or God judges us. And again, He doesn't condemn us to hell. We're saved. But He might discipline us and it will be unpleasant. 
but why not do that to yourself first? It's better. Okay. What else do I want to say about that? I think I said, yeah, that's good. Um, okay, let's keep going. Number three, finally, lastly, um, we looked at the past, we looked at the present, but if you're reading this carefully, there is a future element to the Lord's Supper, right? I know you've noticed this, and I bet you've thought about it. Uh, this is verse 25. In the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim. Karangalo. Karangalo. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now this word, proclaim, it's all over the place in the New Testament. It's all over the place. There's always people proclaiming. But in 1 Corinthians, the book that we're reading from, it's used in a few different places, and I want to show them to you because I think it will help you understand what does it mean that we take communion and we proclaim the Lord's death? What does that mean? Okay, Here's the first one. Uh, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I love this because Paul says, I didn't try to talk people into the kingdom of God. I didn't use the big words. There are big words in the Bible. I understand that. But Paul's like, I'm not using those big words. I'm using the little words. I'm just talking about the cross. It's simple. Kids can get it. Kids can understand it. And I'm proclaiming it. There is a simplicity to communion, you know? It represents Jesus' body and blood. You're taking it in, just like you've taken that new life into you. You're connected to Christ. It's deep, but it's also simple, right? It's food. You eat it. You drink it, you know? Um, There's a simplicity here. Look at the next one, though. Uh, The other time this proclaim word is used. In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, he's making a point about, you know, paying evangelists or pastors or ministers. But but the idea I want you to notice here is they're proclaiming the gospel. There's an evangelistic element here to both of those passages you just read. I proclaimed Christ to you. I proclaimed him to you. There's an evangelistic element to communion. Think about this. When you're the church... You help people, including moving them into their house. Thank you very much for all that help this weekend, which was huge. When you're the church, you don't just help the church, but you help people outside the church too. You might buy them gas. You might buy them groceries. You might go over to their house and watch their kids when they have to go to the hospital for something. But you help people that are not part of the body of Christ. You love them. You reach out to them and you show them that love. But you don't let them take this. Understand? I will love you. You may open your wallet and give them a 20. You may help them uh, with a house project. You can have a long list of things you will do to help and love other people that are not part of the church. But you don't let them take this. We say, no, you can't. You can't have it. Because you're not a believer in Christ. Do you want to? Do you want to? And so if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, I would ask you the same thing. 
this is not for you, but do you want to? Do you want to accept this forgiveness? Do you want to come to the table with us as the church? Because we are proclaiming Jesus' death, and one day the proclaiming is over. I don't mean I don't mean we're not going to praise Jesus for the cross in heaven because we're going to. I mean there's there's a there's a time when evangelism ends and nobody else can get saved. The time when this earthly life is over and the proclamation is over when Jesus returns. We're proclaiming his death until he comes back and we're saying, unless you're part of us, you can't be at the table. You can't. I know one church that does it like this. This is interesting. And I, I, I wouldn't go this far with our church, but, but I think it's very biblical. They're thinking biblically, I think. There's a big free church in uh, California called North Coast, and they do not serve communion on Sundays. They don't do it. Why not? <clears throat> they say... They don't want to accidentally serve communion to people who are not part of the church. They just, you know, people just take communion because it's going by them. And they don't want to serve it to people who are not part of the body. So where do they take communion? How's that work? No communion? Well, no. They say communion is very important. They take it in small groups where people are known to be believers. And they're served intentionally. Like, I, I kind of like that. I'm not saying we're going to do that, start doing that, but, but I'm saying, don't you love the intentionality of following the Word of God? Now, you lose a little bit because you're not all assembled, and I like the assembly. You know, I kind of like this. That's why I'm just going to tell you, if you're not a believer, don't put that on me. It's on you, right? I mean, I, I, that's how I feel about it, but it's serious. Okay, I think I have enough time here. When we say we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, the idea is, when Jesus served in the Last Supper, He said, um, one day I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. Jesus is like, I'm not drinking the wine, I'm not drinking the grape juice until I'm with you, until I return. One day we're going to be eating and drinking with Christ. Now, One of the biggest, the controversy of the Lord's Supper is this. This is the question. How present is Jesus when we take this? Listen to me. How present is Jesus with us right now when we take this? That is the controversy that has separated churches, denominations, Catholic from Protestant. This is why the Reformers Burned at the stake. How present is Jesus? I'll quickly go over the four. And we're kind of concluding with this idea. But I think you'll like where it's going to land at the end. We'll see. Um, Catholic teaching is the bread and the wine actually become Jesus' body and blood. They literally become Jesus' body and blood. They look like bread and look like wine. But they're, but but internally they are Jesus' body and blood. They're physically that. That's Catholic teaching. That's why the Reformers, one of the reasons the Reformers died. Secondly, Luther, Martin Luther said, the bread and the wine contain Jesus' body and blood. So Luther would say, the body stays, the, the bread stays the bread, the wine stays the wine, but somehow, mysteriously, they also contain Jesus' body. 
he used the words, uh, the famous words, Jesus' body is in, with, and under the elements. Right? It contains it. That's Luther. Now, Calvin, John Calvin, said, the bread and the wine are spiritually Jesus' body and blood. So there is something going on here that's different with the elements. Jesus is spiritually here in a different kind of way when you take the Lord's Supper. That's John Calvin. Uh, if you're from the Reformed background, you might be familiar with that. Um, and then finally, and this is our teaching at this church, I'm not saying you have to, um, you may disagree with this, you may, you may be on Calvin's side more, maybe Luther's side more, but, but this is what we always say in this church when we take communion. The bread and the wine, or in our case juice, represents the body and the blood. It's a memorial. It's a representation. It's symbolic. And again, I find it interesting that Jesus said that, that it, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, which means He's not here physically. Does that make sense? I'm proclaiming the Lord's death until... I know this is controversial if you have a Catholic background, but I'm proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes, which means He's not here yet. He's not physically the bread and physically the wine. In fact, I would say these are representations. These are symbolic of what He did. Okay? Um, that's Ulrich Zwingli's view. Um, they have... In conclusion, you ever heard a Jewish person say, next year in Jerusalem? You ever heard that saying? Next year in Jerusalem. They say it two times a year. <clears throat> they say it at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And they'll also say it at Passover. Right? Next year in Jerusalem. What do Jewish people mean by that? These aren't believers in Jesus, by the way. These are Orthodox Jews. Next year in Jerusalem. They mean next year, may it be that Jerusalem's restored and the temple is rebuilt and the sacrifices are being offered again. May it be next year. Next year in Jerusalem. Let's rebuild the temple. Let's start sacrificing the bulls and the goats next year. It's a hope. It's a prayer. And for us, for us, it's next year with Jesus. Right? Next year with Jesus. And maybe tonight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we go into this time of worship and then communion, Help us, help us remember you well. Help us do the past, present, future thing well. I thank you that you're here by the power of your Holy Spirit. That your Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. It's meeting with us right now. We can't wait to be with you. Maybe next year. Maybe tomorrow. We just want to be with you. In your name we pray. Amen.